Amen. And as you're grabbing your seat, uh, go ahead and grab your Bibles as well and turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Uh, we'll read from verses 13 through 19 today. Once again, that's Acts 15, 13 through 19. Um, just a reminder, I hate to share this and talk about this right before we open up God's Word, but it's your monthly reminder that uh, we are asking as you're in the building, uh, if you would please uh, wear a mask through the whole duration of the service, um, know that I've come in, exp- I was planning on sharing this today, there's not a single person that I've seen where I thought I have to say this, but uh, just to, we're, we're trying to keep that out in front of you, that this is what we're asking you to do as long as you're worshiping here in person with us. Uh, please know that there are people that are here that I know for fact are here because they feel safe because everyone's wearing a mask. And uh, we want to be courteous and conscious even if you disagree. That's okay to disagree, um, but just be gracious to those people that uh, are here to feel comfortable. Um, and uh, we would just ask that you would do that. And so uh, we thank you for um, just your patience and graciousness as well as we continue to journey through this pandemic together as a church. Uh, and as a reminder, if you are here and this is your first time or you're relatively new to FAC, um, I, I would love the chance to meet you and uh, get to know you a little bit better. And so feel free to um, come after service and just introduce yourself to me. I, I would love the chance to talk with you. Uh, let's go to God's Word, Acts 15, verses 13 through 19. After they finished speaking... James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Just pray with me. Fathers, we pray as we turn to your inspired word that the Holy Spirit would illuminate these words and enable us to think clearly and respond accordingly. We believe that your written word is the ultimate authority, the ultimate standard of truth, our final authority. In light of this, Father, would we be attentive and alert in our time today? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were not with us last week or didn't have an opportunity to uh, watch the service or listen to the sermon, you may feel a little bit lost because we've approached the text right in the middle of a scene. We've kind of flown in and landed right in the middle of some action. If this was a TV show that you were watching, this would be like coming right back into from a commercial break as we enter into the action as we left it. Last week, by way of reminder, we looked at the first 12 verses of chapter 15 and Um, What we studied really was part one or the first half of a formal debate that broke out among uh, the leaders and believers in Jerusalem over a particular issue. With our national election just right around the corner um, a couple of weeks away, we we are very cognizant to debates right now. 
Um, most debates among people in the political realm happen through informal ways and informal channels like social media. Uh, but there are some debates that happen on a formal level, like we see here in Acts 15. One of those debates uh, happened just about a week and a half ago between Vice President Mike Pence and Senator Kamala Harris. Uh, I, I tuned in to watch for a little bit, uh, as much as I could bear, to be honest with you, um, and, I, and I saw enough. <laughs> if uh, you took the opportunity to watch the debate, though, on several occasions, you would have heard Vice President Pence tell Senator Harris, use the line, that you are entitled to your own opinion, but you are not entitled to your own facts. Uh, I think that quote is a much larger commentary on the world that we live in today. The challenge, though, that one has when watching such a debate these days is that it has become increasingly harder and significantly more difficult to distinguish and decipher the facts from the falsities. The line is blurred between what's true and what isn't. In that particular debate alone, it happened on both sides where um, one would make a factual objective claim, and the other person would just shake their head and say, that's not true. Both of them did that. They merely write it off as false. How do you have two sides of an argument disagree wholeheartedly on something that can be verified, on objective claims? Either he said it or he didn't say it. Either this happened or it didn't happen. Either the numbers say this, or the numbers point to that. You see, this is just a small byproduct of living in what we have defined and what society has defined as a postmodern culture. Perhaps you've heard the, the term before, postmodern, uh, but you're not sure what it means, and so let me take a moment to explain to you what postmodernism is. Postmodernism really began invading America, if you will, in the 1950s, but its history could even go back as far as the late 1800s. Uh, some people consider Friedrich Nietzsche, actually, as, uh, who's a German philosopher from the late 1800s, as the father of postmodernism. Nietzsche held to what is called perspectivism, which says that all knowledge uh, is a matter of perspective or interpretation. And that really is the beginning of postmodern philosophy. It, it's a philosophy that says all truth is relative. One writer says that postmodern thinking is all about experience over reason or logic. It's subjectivity over objectivity. It's spirituality over religion. It's images over words. It's feelings over truth. Postmodernism is a philosophy that challenges the idea of absolute truth, that there are absolute facts that are true for all people at all times. I'll give you an example about how this plays out in real life, a modern day experience. One time in my former church, um, I had this enormous print job that our printers, frankly, couldn't, uh, they, they weren't capable of handling. And so I decided to take it to one of those um, office supply stores to have it printed. And 
As I waited for my print job, I overheard the employee talking with a friend of his who had come in and he was telling his buddy, he was just giving him like a life update basically and explaining to him that he was going back to college. And and as they talked about going back to college and his feelings towards that, he made the point that he was excited, but that in his major that he was pursuing, he had to take a course in astronomy. And this actually made him nervous. And the reason it made him so nervous, and this is what he told his friend, was that he said, I don't like thinking about the vastness of space. I do not like thinking about how large everything is because it makes me feel small. It makes me feel so insignificant. And that terrifies me. When the employee came back over to me, I told him, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to eavesdrop, but I couldn't help but overhear your conversation with your friend. And I want you to know that the day I realized how insignificant and small I was was the greatest day of my life. And I proceeded to tell him about Jesus. And while I am small, Jesus is great and Jesus is big. He looked at me right in the face and he said, well, I'm glad that's true for you. I'm glad that's true for you, but it's not for me. I'm glad that works for you, but I'm on my own journey looking for my own truth. There is a philosophical war waged against absolute truth which is why passages like the one we've just read are so important. And I want to take our time to look at it together today. Once again, by way of reminder, we enter the scene halfway through a lively debate. And the debate originated from some believers who taught that the Gentiles, that the non-Jewish population had to be circumcised in order to be saved. In other words, like I mentioned last week, they had to be Jewish. They had to become Jewish before they became Christian. They were putting conditions on salvation. In this debate, Peter stands up and he shares what I called Exhibit A in defense. And Exhibit A was God's activity. Right? We walked through last Sunday and saw that Peter was adamant that the Gentiles did not need to be circumcised because God's activity uh, said otherwise. Peter reminded the group of leaders about how he preached originally to the Gentiles, right? When he was in Cornelius's house and he preached to Cornelius and his friends and his family, Peter says that God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he had given us the Holy Spirit at the beginning. Peter claims that if the Gentiles needed to be circumcised, uh, God would have never acted in the way that he did. And then in verse 12, after Peter, Peter finishes, it says that all the assembly fell silent. Think about that for a second. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? There's a certain degree of skill required to get a whole room of bickering men just to sit down and be quiet. They fall silent. And I think it's because the argument is so compelling and so persuasive. 
And then Paul and Barnabas get up and, and, and begin to speak. We didn't actually get to this point last week, but they, they play a smaller role in this debate, and, and they pretty much affirm what Peter was saying. They add on to the argument that God has acted in a certain way. Paul and Barnabas explain, hey, not only did God work in the way that he did 10 years ago, but we've just completed a, a missionary journey, and guess what? God is still acting in that manner today. He continues to give people the Holy Spirit. He continues to save the Gentiles without them needing to become Jewish first. But Paul and Barnabas are just like, hey, ditto what Peter said, right? Like we can agree this is exactly what God has done and is still currently doing. And then James gets up in the first verse that we're looking at today in verse 13. James stands up and says, brothers, listen to me. James seems to come out of nowhere here in Acts, but it's important for us to know who he is. Um, Knowing who he is and the influence he had will put some flesh on what he has to say. It's appropriate for us to ask the question, who is this James guy that seems to come out of the woodwork in our story? He's only been mentioned one other time in Acts, and that was back in Acts chapter 12. If you recall, this is when Peter was miraculously delivered out of prison by an angel. And the first thing that Peter did is he went to a church in Jerusalem, a house church. And there were a bunch of people there gathering and praying. And uh, Peter described to them how the Lord brought him out of prison. And after he explained how he was delivered, he tells them, he instructs the believers there to tell these things to James. And then he makes his exit. And so James actually doesn't even show up in the story. He's just merely mentioned. Here in Acts 15, this is the first time we see James speak. It's all we've heard about him so far. And it may seem odd that Luke, who writes this book, who wrote Acts, doesn't go into detail about James and who he is or introduce him. And it's because to the original reader, James literally needed no introduction. He is such a high-profile figure in that first church that everybody, everybody knew James. We can tell here, even in our passage in Acts 15, that James has some clout because he gets up and says, brothers, listen to me. He's pretty much saying, hey, I have an opinion on this matter, and I know that you value my opinion, and so you better listen. He just kind of like commands their attention. And I don't think that this is because of a certain arrogance about him or even a a personal character flaw, but rather just his influence of his role, the influence of his role. There are some people who have such influence that when they walk into the room and speak, you listen just because of who they are just because of the role that they fulfill. James is such a person. Some things that we should know about James that will help us understand his influence, but also help us understand what he has to say next and even into what we will look at next week. First, most scholars agree that James is the brother of Jesus. Now now consider the ramifications of that. I have worked with many, many people in ministry, but none of them know me 
like my own two brothers. Of all of Jesus' disciples, James knew Jesus in a unique and different way than the rest. Back in in John chapter 7, if you were to turn there, if James is one of the brothers uh, listed in James 7, it just speaks of Jesus' brothers in general, and it very well could have, James could have been in that group. In John 7, we actually come to find that he was a skeptic, that he didn't believe Jesus at first, uh, and Jesus' claims to be the Messiah. Um, But James does eventually come around, and he was actually one of the first, according to Paul, to witness his brother's resurrection. Soon enough, James actually becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Once again, even here in Acts 15, he's sort of functioning as the chairman of this gathering. It's clear that, that James has the final word on this matter. There's seniority here. And in the first century, he becomes a prominent figure, not just within the church, but also outside of the church, within the community. Sources outside of Scripture actually describe that he was well-respected, even among non-Christians. Sources say that he was a disciplined man who continued to pray in the temple, where he would intercede for the Jewish people in the city of Jerusalem. He was so well-respected that when he died in 62 AD, he was actually stoned to death. And when that happened, the people of the city, even non-believers, were shocked and furious. They were angry that James had been put to death. One source even claims that, quote, years later, uh, some ascribed the calamity that overtook the city, being Jerusalem, and its inhabitants to the cessation of James's prayers on their behalf. After James died in 62 AD, there was a great uh, calamity to the city. There was devastation. And there were certain people that actually blamed the devastation to Jerusalem on the fact that James was no longer around to pray for them. That's influence. And finally, as I've already alluded to, Um, it's important to note that not only was James influential, but he was still a law-abiding Jew. He ministered almost exclusively to Jewish Christians, uh, so of course he still adheres to the law. James understands that he's not under the law anymore, right? He doesn't need the law to earn himself favor with God. Jesus already did that. But in his spirit, he still feels like it's just the right thing to do. He is not bound to it, but feels that he should still follow it. There's even emphasis in our passage on how Jewish James is in verse 15. Because in that verse, if you take a look, he actually refers to Peter as Simeon, or as other translations might say, it's the name Simon, which was his original Hebrew name. If you recall, Peter's original name is Simon, and then Jesus gives him another name. Jesus calls him Cephas which is Aramaic for the rock. Cephas, translated to Greek, is the name Peter. And this is why we often refer to him as Simon Peter, because Simon was his original Hebrew Jewish name, and then Jesus gave him the name, the Greek name, Peter, which means rock. And so James here uh, doesn't refer to him as Peter, but as Simon or Simeon. 
And I think he does this to kind of show his affinity with the Jewish Christians. And so remember the context of this debate, if you recall. There were Jewish Christians insisting once more that Gentiles must become Jewish, non-Jewish people must become Jewish before they are saved. They say it's necessary for them to be circumcised and, and, to, uh, and to keep the law of Moses. Peter gets up and claims that this shouldn't be uh, the case based on God's activity, based on what God has done, that God has acted in a way that goes against such requirements. And then James gets up to speak. In verse 13, James, who is the model Jewish Christian of the time, he's like the ideal believer who still follows Jewish customs. James, who is still heavily involved in Jewish practice, stands up and says, now brothers, listen to me. Perhaps some of them thought that James would get up and give a rebuttal to Peter's claim. When James speaks, some of the Jewish believers insisting that Gentiles become Jewish first are probably thinking, hey, if anybody is going to agree with us in Christian leadership, if there's anybody in the room that's going to get up and agree with us, it's James. And so, yes, James, let's hear your thoughts on the matter. And what does James say? I want you to take a look at it with me once more, starting in verse 15. James says, Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to uh, take from them a people for his name. He's essentially reviewing what Peter has claimed, what Peter has said. And then after this is when you would kind of insert your opinion, right? Or insert your own thoughts, but not James. Take a look at what he says in verse 15. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Don't miss how important this is. James, who is strongly Jewish, who holds to Jewish customs, affirms what Peter says and then backs it up with Scripture. He's saying what Peter experienced is consistent with God's word. And so if exhibit A here in this debate is God's activity that we looked at last week, then exhibit B in the defense is God's word. The solution that they find in this debate comes from this interaction between what God has clearly done and what God has clearly said. God's activity and God's word will always, always, work in tandem with one another. What God does and what God says will always be in correlation with one another. It's also important to know that God's activity and his word not only work in conjunction with one another, with each other, but they will also never contradict each other. God will never act in a way that is contrary to his word. And God's word will never say something contrary to what he is doing in and around our lives. There will never, ever be a day when what God does contradicts what he says and what God says contradicts what he does. Verse 15 is absolutely critical for us today. 
as we work hard to navigate through the jungle of a postmodern world in a culture that says there is no such thing as absolute truth. We struggle at times to determine God's activity. Today, we see the world through a lens that has been stained by our sin and distorted by our culture. And we can be easily fooled or deceived or manipulated or distracted away from what God is doing. Even worse, sometimes we are deceived into believing that God is doing something when he really isn't. And and we deceive ourselves when we rely too heavily on our experiences to navigate God's activity. We must understand that our experiences are not authoritative. This can be a hard truth to swallow, but our experiences are not authoritative. Just because you have some kind of experience that you believe is God's activity or God's movement doesn't mean it's from God. I was a youth pastor for like a decade, and do you know how many times I had somebody come up to me and say, God told me to date so-and-so? And then, interestingly enough, a couple of weeks would go by and they would come back and said, oh, God told me to break up with so-and-so. I just came across an article this past week from 2017 about a truck driver from Missouri who purposefully crashed his tractor trailer into the back end of a pickup truck, killing two people in the process. And do you know what the driver told investigators? God told me to do it. God told me to do this. In a postmodern world where facts are challenged, where everything is relative, where experiences are valued over reason and feelings are valued over truth, we must, as believers, cling to the authoritative word of God. The written word of God is our final authority. The written word of God is the ultimate standard of absolute truth. And we will be challenged on this. However, this is why we must work diligently individually to mine the depths, the vast depths of the truth in this book. This is why every Sunday we come together and we open this book because we can't afford not to. We never have been able to afford it, and even more so today. Shame on us. If there's ever a Sunday that goes by where we don't open this up and say, this is the word of God. This is what he is telling us. Do you see this? I I want you to listen to what Wayne Grudem has to say uh, on this matter in in his book on systematic theology. He's a theologian, and this is what he writes. Throughout the history of the church, the greatest preachers have been those who recognize that they have no authority in themselves and have seen their task as being to explain the words of Scripture and apply them clearly to the lives of their hearers. 
their preaching has drawn its power not from the proclamation of their own Christian experiences or the experiences of others, nor from their own opinions, creative ideas, or rhetorical skills, but from God's powerful words. Essentially, they stood in the pulpit, pointed to the biblical text, and said in effect to the congregation, this is what this verse means. Do you see that meaning here as well? If so, then you must believe it and obey it with all of your heart. For God himself, your creator and your Lord, is saying this to you today. Do you see the truth in Scripture? Do you see that there is such a thing as absolute truth? And that God in his graciousness has revealed it to us in his written word. That God in his graciousness has revealed absolute truth in the word becoming flesh as Jesus. Don't get me wrong. Experiences are important. God can use our experiences to help us see things that we have never seen before. Our experiences can prove to be beneficial and instrumental in our faith and our walk with Christ. However, God's written word is always the measuring stick by which we evaluate and assess our experiences because our experiences and our emotions can easily deceive us into thinking or believing something that is not true. Once again, we view the world through a lens that is stained by our sin and distorted by our culture. All of Christianity, we we need to take off those set of eyeglasses and we need to put on a new pair, a pair that comes from God and allows us to see the world as God sees it. And the only way to see the world as God sees it is to view the world through the context of God's written word, not based on anything else. In our passage, Peter could have easily stood up and spoken from experience, the experience that he had. And you better believe that if there was anything that contradicted God's word, James would have called him on it. Peter shares his experience. It's valid. And then God's word validates it. In this debate, James has the final word. And this final word does not originate with him, but from God. Last week, I posed the question, Uh, I asked us to consider who determines the boundaries and the goalposts in our life. Who gets to write the rule book? It's God, specifically through his written word. And so once again, in this debate in Acts 15, you've got some believers trying to change the goalposts. And James challenges them with the word of God. He actually quotes Amos 9, 11 through 12 from the Old Testament. Uh, Amos prophesied in Jerusalem in the 8th century BC, just outside of Jerusalem. And in that section of prophecy, God speaks through Amos and says that the, the nation of Israel is to be destroyed because it's a sinful nation. Amos explains that David's kingdom is a sinful kingdom, and so David's house is going to fall. It's going to be destroyed, but it's not going to, uh, it won't totally be wiped off from the planet. No, God explains goes on to explain through Amos that after David's house is destroyed, God says, hey, I will return 
and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. And that's the passage, the first verse that we read. Essentially, what God is saying through this prophecy is, hey, I'm going to pick up the pieces. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stoop down to the rubble, and I'm going to take all the rubble in, in, in like a magnificent puzzle. I'm going to miraculously put the rubble back together. I will restore the kingdom of David. As we've explored scripture together, we know that God restores the kingdom of David through what? Through the kingship of Jesus. God restores David's throne through the death and the resurrection and the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus. And what is one of the reasons why God restores the kingdom of of David? Take a look. It's in verse 17. Why does God rebuild it? Because through this rebuilding, it's through this king, this King Jesus on the throne, that the remnant in verse 17, notice it's not the remnant of Israel, but the remnant of mankind. So that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, God says. What Amos pictures here is the rest of humanity seeking the Lord with the house of David restored. As Christ is risen from the dead and the kingdom of David is restored, this draws the world in. This is one of the ways that God draws people to come to him through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so James applies this to the situation and says, no, he makes this final judgment, a formal rejection here in verse 19, right? A rejection of the claim that the Gentiles must be Jewish to be saved. James says, no, that's inconsistent. That's inconsistent with the word of God because it's always been God's plan to include the Gentiles just as they were. This is a part of God's eternal purposes. In fact, the Gentile inclusion as they are is, is a promise from God. God has promised this and now through Peter, he's acting on it. And so James says, hey, therefore, therefore in light of what God has done, And in light of what God has said, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And so a final word and an invitation in regards to the prophecy that James quotes, and in light of what God has clearly said, not just in this passage, but in all of the pages of Scripture, This prophecy is clear and scripture is clear that James, uh, what James quotes, that Jesus died, that he rose again, that he was ascended into heaven and now he sits exalted at the right hand of God so that you may turn to him. And his death and resurrection eliminated any obstacles in your way. As James puts it, there is no trouble in turning to God. We get the classic picture at Jesus' crucifixion with the temple and the Holy of Holies. And only one person could go into the Holy of Holies and it was the high priest and he could only do it once a year. And if he went in there any other time for any other reason without doing any of the other rituals, he would die on the spot. It was a sacred place, the Holy of Holies, and it was said to be to house the presence of God. And when Jesus died on that cross, the curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom. 
giving us access to God. And so I have to ask you, have you turned to God? Because there are no obstacles anymore in front of you. There is nobody standing between you and Jesus. And so this very day, would you humble yourself and turn to him so that you may be saved and given the Holy Spirit? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. Um, as James has said, that there is no trouble in turning to you. Lord, there is nothing that we need to do. There is nothing that we need to be. There is no one standing at the gate other than Jesus himself. And Jesus invites us. He invites us in. And we thank you that this is a truth, an absolute truth that is revealed in the scriptures, that is revealed in your word, that was revealed in your spoken word, that is revealed in your, your now written word, and it was revealed in, in the, the living word, Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we would, we would uh, submit ourselves to you, that we would humble ourselves to you, and, and that your spirit would soften many hardened hearts especially in our culture right now, Father, would we turn to you. We praise you for all of this, Lord. In your glorious Son's name we pray. Amen.